All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Chris Van Vliet on Cameras, Connections and Insight. Chris is a four-time Emmy Award-winning TV host, entertainment reporter and YouTuber based in sunny Los Angeles, California. He has travelled the world reporting from events like the Oscars, Grammys and the Cannes Film Festival. You may be familiar with the interviews that Chris posts on YouTube, but to just call them interviews doesn't seem fair because there's so much more than that. Chris dives deep into interesting topics with his trademark conversational approach that makes it feel like two old friends catching up. This is the case whether it's a wrestling superstar like John Cena, the rocker Hulk Hogan, or a Hollywood A-lister like Oprah Winfrey, Tom Cruise or Will Smith. Chris's broadcasting career began in 2005 after he graduated from Wilfred Laurier University with an honours degree in communication studies. His first on-air job was working as a news reporter and videographer for CHEX-TV in Peterborough before hosting the MTV2 show 969 in Vancouver and then hosting Inside Jam on Sun TV in Toronto. In 2010, Chris moved to Cleveland, Ohio to work as an entertainment reporter for CBS affiliate WOIO as also a radio personality on WOK. While in Cleveland, Chris was named Cosmopolitan Magazine's Bachelor of the Year and he donated the $10,000 prize money to the Boys and Girls Club of Cleveland. He was also awarded the Personal of the Year Award honour from the Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2012. In 2015, Chris moved to Miami to join WSVN's primetime entertainment programme, Deco Drive. He's an avid bass fisherman and is a co-founder of the outdoor brand Woo Tungsten. He currently resides in Los Angeles. And in this interview, we discuss how to connect with a guest, having deep interviews using authenticity, building a community, using insight to change your life, and so much more. And now, let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. To say I'm a, a fan of yours is an understatement. I'm almost a stalker. I've watched so many of your videos recently. For people who maybe don't know who you are, and I bet there's very few at the moment, could you give a quick introduction of who you are and why you're a legend in the wrestling scene? <laughs> I wouldn't uh, use those words myself, but first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I've worked as a television host for most of my career, working in various different cities across Canada and the US. And I've always been a pro wrestling fan. So through working in television, I've had the incredible opportunity to interview some of the biggest stars in the world, but also some of the biggest stars in wrestling. And started putting those interviews on my YouTube channel, geez, 10 years ago. And it's just kind of snowballed on itself. And one interview led to another, which led to a few dozen, which have now led to several hundred interviews. And yeah, I mean, I'm still hosting TV shows, but I also have a podcast and a YouTube channel where 
I'm interviewing people from all different walks of life, celebrities and actors and directors and comedians, but also a lot of wrestlers on there. And that's how I originally found you. I mean, I've, I've been a, say a closet wrestling fan now for about all my life. You know, even when it was not cool, I still watched it. What was it about wrestling that drew you in? Was there a particular storyline, a wrestler? What initially got that spike for you? Because, I mean, I loved The Undertaker, for example. Uh, sure. Even through the American badass, dark years. And what was it that got you kind of pumped for it? What was it that drew you in when you were a kid? For me, it was the late 90s and the Attitude Era. And I was a teenager at that time. It was, what a dumb phrase, a teenager. Yeah, I was a teenager. I was in high school at that time. And I was, I wasn't really a fan. I was aware of wrestling, but I wasn't really a fan. And one of my best friends, his name is Vince. We would do this crazy thing in the 90s called talking on the phone. So we would talk on the phone, you know, almost every day. (laughs) Wild, right? And then Monday at nine o'clock, our phone calls, boom, had to abruptly come to an end because Raw was on and he was a huge fan. And one Monday I went, yeah, you know what? I'll I'll stay on the phone with you. We're not done talking about what we're going to talk about. And I stayed on with the phone with him and I just was sucked into Raw. And it was Austin McMahon and their big feud at the time. And I was just so drawn in. And I'm the type of person that when I'm passionate about something, I dive all the way in on it. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't go halfway. I dive all the way in. I don't check the temperature of the water. I'll check the depth of the water, just dive in. And that was the way I was with wrestling. And it was Austin McMahon and also The Rock, huge rock fan. And so captivated by the charisma that he had both in his matches and outside the ring as well. Because that's definitely something that comes across in your interviews. You interview almost like The Rock. You know, you've got this energy, this passion, whereas other people are like, "Mm," you know, you've got this kind of real showmanship about it. But you initially got into, you you used to try mimic radio DJs as a child. Do you think the showmanship from the wrestling and the, you know, the the emotion and the the storylines, etc., as well as your love for that, was that what promoted the Chris that we see today and in insight, you know, of why you've been so successful, do you think? Yeah, I think that there's definitely some area where they kind of bleed over. But you're referencing like me pretending to be a radio DJ when I was four years old. I had a <laughs> Fisher Price tape recorder and I pretended to be the radio DJs that I heard on the radio. And I, I fell in love with broadcasting at a very young age. And I knew it would be a long shot to try to work in radio or television, but I knew that I at least wanted to give myself that opportunity and, you know, introduce that love of wrestling when I was 15, 16 years old, that huge passion for wrestling. And Mm -hmm. I realized that every wrestler, wherever you were on the card, had a certain charisma about them. I mean, whether it was the rocks over the top, you know, incredible charisma that he had or someone like the undertaker had a different kind of charisma, but everybody had this charisma that just leapt through the screen. And, I realized that when you're a broadcaster, you're playing a version of yourself. You're still yourself. You're still Chris Van Vliet, but you're playing like an amped up version of yourself. And I think that there's a real marriage there to what wrestlers do. They're playing themselves, but they're playing themselves like turned up to 11. And I realized very quickly in my broadcasting career that as excited as you think you might be, or as charismatic as you think you might be being on camera, the camera like flattens it 
a lot. And I just knew that like I had to kind of like bring that out of myself every time the red light was on, whether that was on the radio or whether that was in t- on TV. Because I was recently at the, the Arnold's Fitness um, show and one of the guys speaking was Flex Wheeler. And yeah. he's a, you know, a famous bodybuilder and he was talking about how he used to be terrified of going up on stage. So he used to have this like egocentric, I'm the best in the world kind of persona because it was the only thing that made him get up there to show off and, re- you know, to go on the stage. So everybody kind of hated him, but he said if they knew how he really felt, you know, that was it. How did you start finding this persona? Because that was going to be one of my questions is, you know, do you dial up your Chris? You know, it's, it is a louder Chris that we would see in everyday life. But how would you advise people listening who are interested, um, you know, to, to find their inner I want to say inner Chris, but that sounds wrong. You know, our inner persona. How do, how would we find this? I think it's so important to watch your stuff back. And I think that we live in a time where you're in, well, not even time. The first time you hear yourself, you know, on a voicemail, or the first time you hear a recording of yourself, you go, that's is that what I really sound like. Oh my gosh, no. And then you see yourself, you know, whether it's on your own iPhone recording or webcam recording, you go, oh, do I really look like that? Do I do that thing with my eyebrows when I talk? And why does this part of my mouth go up and the other part go down? Every it day. is so important <laughs> to get used to, yes, this is how you look. This is how you sound. This is how the rest of the world sees and hears you. So I think it begins with getting comfortable and self-aware of that's who you are. So it starts there and then it starts uh, from there. I think you go, okay, what can I work on? Uh, what, what can I do to make myself a little bit better? And I think that that's really it. And like, maybe tomorrow you try to amp it up a little bit and then watch that. If maybe it was too much, dial it back a little bit. But I think it's that constant process of like tweaking and tuning it to find out what feels most authentic to you. And also understand that energy is contagious. And if you're, you know, greeting people with this big energy and a smile that feels authentic, they're going to reciprocate that back to you. And if you're going to host a podcast or a YouTube channel or a TV show or radio show, and you're just like, oh, hey, yeah, it's so happy to have you here. People are, you know, they're going to see right through this and they're not going to be drawn into that. Because that's definitely something I struggle with. Like I... I always think I'm shouting, so I have to kind of lay it down. And I always think um, I don't want to be that guy that jumps in and talks over the guest. So I struggle to kind of know where that, where the role is, know your role. Um, so is that why do you think you've been so successful, that you approach the interviews as a fan, that you want to just connect with a guest, that you know, you're not trying to keep an image, you're just showing your love for the person you're speaking to? Well, I think for me, I stopped thinking of interviews as interviews uh, early in my career, and that helped a lot. I think that interview scares people. Like that word like is a scary word because people think of it as like interview with a capital I. And I, I just want to have a conversation with people. And some of the people that I looked up to early on in my career were the best at having just conversations with people and not trying to make it like a Q&A. So... I think for me, it was twofold. One, trying to make it as authentic uh, as a conversation as possible. Mm-hmm. And number two, especially when it came to wrestling interviews, asking questions that I was genuinely interested in 
as a fan. And I felt like I had a real advantage there, especially early in my career. Some of my early interviews were with Bobby Lashley. This is my very first wrestling interview I ever did. But Bobby Lashley, Jack Swagger, Jeff Hardy. Like I did interviews with these big name people. And oftentimes when they were doing the promo work on TV or like promotional tours on TV, they were just talking about Raw being in town or SmackDown being in town or Impact Wrestling being in town. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Raw is in town tomorrow night. Tickets start at $20. Great. Anyway, Jeff Hardy, like, tell me about this match that happened 15 years ago that I've always wanted to know the answer to. Yep. And the, the cool thing is you see their eyes light up. They're like, oh, you're, you're a fan. You're a fan. Like, I'm a fan of this. And they want to like dive into this story and like tell you like the ins and outs of this. And I think that that's what really helped me was like finding this common ground with these people and building a rapport with them. Cause it's something that I hated when I first started. Like I'd be interviewing Jay Cutler or I'd be interviewing like Gary Vanderchak or whoever it was. And you would get the same interview five or six times. You could just change the podcast name at the top. Sure. And I was thinking, we need more. I want to know what, like, dive into that, you know, find out about that. And that's why I quite like you, like your style where you find out things you don't know or, you know, you push past the normal. Oh, you're in town. What do you think of your upcoming match? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you see, unfortunately, everybody seems to follow this template of how an interview should run. And I quite like that way of looking at it as a chat, a conversation rather than a, I'm going to ask you questions and you have to sit and pretend it's a job kind of thing. So you've interviewed some amazing people like Oprah Winfrey, The Rock. How do you build that bond with them? How do you make, because every interview, I was laughing at how relaxed you are. You're getting them to do their catchphrases. You know, you're getting chopped by people. You're you're doing all these amazing things and you're you get them to come out their shell and be genuine people. How do you find that rather than get them to break out the character they're portraying? and be real and instead of getting these sort of fluff pieces like other people get you get these deep level interviews is it just use you, your personality do you think or is there a way that you worked on this oh that's very kind of you to say and and thank you for that ian i think for me it's just trying to build that rapport and understanding that the interview begins if it's a zoom interview like this the interview begins when the zoom window opens not when the red light gets pushed and when it's an in-person interview, it begins the second you walk into that room, not the second they say, okay, we're rolling, go ahead. And I think it's important to just build that rapport and also understand that, sure, if they're Leonardo DiCaprio or Tom Cruise or Oprah or The Rock, they're also a human being just like me and you. And speaking mm-hmm. to them as such, I think, really levels the playing field Instead of like being like, Oh, Miss Winfrey, you are so great. Of course she's so great. You know, like, and it's okay to throw that into a conversation, but I think that there needs to be a, a point of the conversation where you're speaking to them as if they're another human and try not to plan it out too much. Obviously know what questions you're going to ask. Obviously know a lot about them. Do a ton of research and kind of plan out the topics that you want to discuss, but if me and you were to sit down for a beer right now, I wouldn't be like, all right, so I'm going to say this and then Ian's going to respond with this. And while he's saying that, I'm going to be thinking about the next. No, we would just be talking. You'd be in the moment. You'd be present. And I think it's so important to be present and actually listening. Larry King said it best. And I love this quote. He says, I never learned anything by talking. And I'm always 
so grateful when I see these comments on my YouTube channel where people are like, oh my gosh, he actually like lets them answer the question. It's like, yes, like I'm <laughs> hyper aware that nobody is listening to my podcast and nobody's going to my YouTube channel because of me. Maybe they're staying now because they enjoy the interviews that I've had, but no one's coming there because they're like, oh yeah, well, I want to see Chris. They're there for who the guests are. That's the way I look at it. It's like, I'm just asking questions. You're the get, you know, you're the star. You're the person people come to listen to. And it's, it's that moment of like, you know, you see the guest get about to say something and really expand on it. And the interviewer cuts them off because they want, it's like Joe Rogan. He needs to get his point across. Where do you want to say, hey, hey, pipe down. Let's let so and so speak. And it definitely does come across that you are genuinely interested in what the person's saying. And I think that's the beauty of it is you're not looking at them as on a pedestal. You're looking at them as just human beings. Like when I interviewed Mark Smelly Bell, um, big powerlifter, he was yeah, like, of course. oh, I never, I never get a chance to Bigger, speak Bigger, stronger, this. faster. Love a guy. Like, and he's like, I never get a chance to speak about stuff like this. And I'm like, yeah. why, why, why not? Like, this is, I love diving into the, the deeper stuff. Um, I mean, that's why I loved your show because you, like me, want to find the things that work for them and reverse engineer it for us to then succeed. So what have you noticed about all these people that you've interviewed? Is there something about the way they conduct themselves in interviews? Is there something that sets these kind of like top level elite performers off? If you had to kind of summarize it, you've got a great blog post on it. But what would you say is the, you know, three to five key points that you've really noticed with these? Yeah. So look, I approach all of my conversations and all my podcast episodes really just with a genuine curiosity. Like I want to find out what makes those people tick because so often in life, we just see the finished product. You know, we just see Tom Brady on the field winning seven Super Bowls, or we just see Denzel Washington winning an Oscar or something like that. We don't see the whole process that leads to that. And in this era of social media, it's so easy to go, oh, well, they got lucky. And that's not the case. They're, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I love that phrase. And I think that oftentimes people don't see the hard work. And mm-hmm. I think that that's number one. That's the number one thing that all of these high achievers, whether you're an entrepreneur, an actor, a celebrity, comedian, wrestler, athlete, whatever it is, they all have in common is a ton of hard work and also a very specific goal of what they're heading towards. They're not going, yeah, it'd be pretty cool if I was an actor one day. They make their identity. I am an actor. Maybe if they, maybe they haven't even started anything yet. Maybe they haven't even acted in anything yet, but they tell themselves, I am an actor. That becomes their identity. In the same way that when you talk to a wrestler, they go, I told people from age nine, I was going to be a pro wrestler and everybody laughed at me. And that becomes your identity. That becomes the goal that you're driving towards. So that, I think that that's a really important thing. And I think another really big one is just a constant ability to want to learn. Never, like, never being the person who goes, yeah, I've learned it all. I am where I'm at and I don't need to like progress from here. It's constantly learning that or realizing that learning is a process and I can learn more today than I knew yesterday. And I can learn more the day after that than I learned as well. So I'd say those are, those are definitely a few commonalities. So when, when you're interviewing these sort of people, how do you actually prep for it? Do you, do you bother going into like deep and checking their career histories and watch videos or do you just keep your sort of natural curiosity and know enough about them and then let the, let the interview flow? 
because I find that when I do these kind of interviews, I'm very kind of, okay, here's his life and here's his, you know, his areas. And I want to stick to these kind of questions. I kind of avoid going back and forth because I always feel like there's so much I want to get from the guest. I find it hard to step out of that. How do you keep these kind of natural interviews, but still get such amazing content and hacks and life tips from them? I try to learn as much as I can about that person without overlearning, if that makes sense. So I'll listen to a podcast or two with them. I'll watch a YouTube interview or two with them. I will read a Wikipedia entry. And I, I think a Wikipedia entry is really good because for a lot of people, it gives a timeline of their career. This is what they were doing when they were a kid. This is where they went to high school, possibly where they went to college. This is where they got their break in whatever industry that they're in. And I like to kind of see that timeline because you sometimes will start to see a lot of things in common with all those different people. So I also want to know as much as I can so that if they start talking about a subject that maybe I didn't write a question down for, that I'm prepared. And if the conversation is going to veer right, I can veer right with them and then start to ask those questions. Because when I first started, I was terrified. Like I had these strict 15, 20 questions. And if you went off or kind of like I found a lot of guests combine the questions. So they'll mm. maybe their answer will yeah. encompass three or four things. And suddenly you see the guest going, okay, what next? And yeah. so they're going, uh, and it's... <sighs> It's like Tim Ferriss's approach is quite unique because he has five to 10 questions that he just asks you regardless. Yeah. And I always think, well, that's, yeah, that's fine, but I want to know about this. I would like to know about that. And I like to deep dive stuff and find out stuff that you've never talked about before. But something, for example, like I used to just do audio. I hated video. I hate the idea of putting myself out because I always think I look like a serial killer. (laughs) <laughs> and I wanted to get into this point of like, like when I concentrate, my eyebrows come together and I'm like, oh, is it doing that? Is it my unibrow? Is it, um, am I like drooling? You know, I always worry that how I'm looking. How did you overcome that fear of coming on camera? Because you look amazing. Style, you know, you're always got your suits on, your styling and profiling, you're booted up, your sock game's immense. How, you know, how did you overcome that? Because you did YouTube first and then your podcast. Yeah. So, and the, podcast kind of was, uh, it was an afterthought at first. Like I didn't want to take people away from the YouTube channel because the YouTube channel was gaining quite a bit of momentum at that time. And I didn't want to take even five viewers away that would become listeners on the podcast. And then I very quickly realized that they're two completely separate audiences. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if I re- in all reality, it was radio first, then it was TV, then it was a mixture of TV and radio, then it was YouTube, and then it was the podcast. Like that was kind of the progression of things. And it really just goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's getting comfortable with the broadcast version of yourself. It's getting comfortable that like, I, I know who I am, Chris, as a person, but what does Chris look like when he's on camera? And I don't, I don't mean to talk about it in a third person, but it almost like it almost is that way. It almost is mm. a third person. It almost is a character because we so rarely see that representation of ourselves because we live our own life. You know, we live what we see through our eyeballs rather than what people are actually seeing of us. So it was having that self awareness of many, many months into years of watching yourself on TV. And I'd say it was me being on TV every day or every weekday for a good year and a half, two years. 
till I started to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's me. I figured it out. I figured out like this version of me, but it's, it's just doing it. It's just getting those reps in. And I think that that would be not unlike a baseball player, just taking a bunch of swings or a football player, you know, throwing the ball a bunch or a wrestler, just having a bunch of matches and watching them back. And I think it's just a matter of putting in that time. So do you find that you change your style when you're, you know, doing television compared to like your podcast or, you know, do you have like a set way of approaching an interview each time? Do you have like a mantra? Do you feel the nerves now? Or do you just get to a point where it becomes like having a camera in your face is second nature? If you do feel nervous, is, have you got a way, like a ritual where you can kind of recenter yourself to get ready for the, the, the Chris at 11 that's about to come out in an interview? I'll say that podcasting has really changed my interview style a lot because it's a free flowing conversation. You've got 45 minutes, an hour, however long that conversation ends up being. And you can really dive deep into some subjects like you brought up. A lot of the celebrity interviews I was doing were red carpet interviews, 90 seconds, one or two questions, or a junket style interview, which we've all seen those interviews where you're in a hotel room, they sit in one chair, you sit in another chair, and they're doing 40, 50 yep. interviews a day. They're four minutes long. So the person that went in before you got four minutes, you're getting four minutes, and then there's going to be 46 other people after you that are going to do four-minute interviews. So those interviews, you really had to kind of get to the point a little quicker, but still try to build a rapport. So I kind of look at it, you know, Marshall McLuhan famously said the medium is the message. And I think that that's so true. The medium of podcasting is pretty different than the medium of radio or the medium of YouTube or the medium of television. And I think it's important to know that going into it and also know what you're trying to get out of it. And yeah, before a big interview, yeah, I still get nervous. Definitely. Especially when you're on a red carpet and someone like The Rock is walking down the red carpet, your palms start to get a little bit sweaty. And it's not because you're about to talk to The Rock. It's because of you know what's tied into this moment. Maybe you've only got 90 seconds, two minutes to have a conversation with him and you feel the pressure of, oh, I want this to be good. I want this to be so good. And yeah. I want to get something out of it that is usable, especially for the TV segment that we're creating here. So you're kind of putting the pressure on yourself, but then you're in the moment and you just kind of realize we're just two humans sharing an interaction right now. And I'm going to try to make this as memorable for me and for that person and also for the audience as possible. Yeah, I mean, that definitely hit home because a lot of times when I was first starting, I was afraid to ask the questions about things where I knew we could go into like a deep, dark place, which could get amazing content, but I was afraid of rocking the boat. And now mm -hmm. I'm kind of, mm -hmm. I put too much pressure on myself. Like I listen to heaps of your interviews, heaps of like your own videos. And I always think in my head, am I asking the right question? No, that's not how I wanted to ask it. And it's that kind of like, it's, I see it in some interviews where they ask a stupid question and it knocks them for the rest of the interview. And it kind of just teeters at that point. And you want to say to them, no, no, just re refresh it. Like, you know, how, so if you say if you are in that interview and like the Anne Hathaway, you know, like I know you probably the clickbait title about offending her. If you do make a mistake, if you do want to ask a, a, 
dodgy question. Uh, you know, something like the Billy Gannon incident where you were talking about like his drug addiction. Mm-hmm. How do you approach these kind of difficult conversations? How do you get them to open up in these senses? Because I find like I, I was always brought up to speak to the janitor the same as the CEO. You know, everybody's yeah. got a story. Treat everybody the same. Yeah. Why do you think some people stay at that level and never want to go into the the darker places where we find out the true person, the true struggle, the you know what makes them them? I think when I'm approaching an interview and there's a difficult topic that may be broached, I usually talk to them beforehand. Mm. Or if it's something I didn't talk to them about beforehand, like that Billy Gunn interview, for example, he just brought it up. And I wasn't even really thinking we would talk about it. And then when he brought it up, I said, well, let's you know kind of continue down this path. Uh, with the Anne Hathaway interview, for example, I wasn't trying to make a clickbait title. I wasn't trying to ask uh, an embarrassing question. I was trying to ask a fitness question and I just didn't phrase it well. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ask her about Catwoman. I wanted to ask her about these photos of the suit. I just wanted to talk about Batman because I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. And I wanted to just ask her about the Dark Knight Rises and just learn something about that. And I didn't really think about the question in advance and then just in the moment, I asked the question that I asked and it's really been funny. You know, that was almost 10 years ago. It's been really funny seeing the reaction from a lot of people. Like, how dare you ask a woman about her weight? Yep. And the reality is actors talk about this all the time. And I've had that. I've asked a similar question, maybe in a better way to Hugh Jackman, to Christian Bale, to lots of different actors and it's not a question that they usually shy away from at all. In fact, Anne Hathaway, a few years later, spoke openly about how much weight she lost for Les Miserables. And it was mm. just so interesting that, you know, she was fun and she was playful with it. And I don't, you know, I've interviewed her many times after that. And she's amazing and super talented. But it was funny, the reaction online. And I think it actually says more about those people than it does about me or Anne Hathaway. Like if that's the thing that they're drawn to, that's the immediate reaction, visceral reaction that some people have. And I'll say it's probably a minority of people, but if that's the visceral reaction that they have, I think it says more about them Mm -hmm. than it does about me or Anne or the industry as a whole. Because I was enjoying the whole interview and when people are like, oh, he, he, he couldn't ask that. And I was like, why not? It's an it's, it's an interesting question. How did she transform from A to B to get ready for that role to play the character? And it's like you're saying, you ask Hugh Jackman, he'll tell you about his getting up at three o'clock in the morning to drink his protein shakes and it working out and his cheat meals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like we've society's dictated what you're allowed to talk about and what you're not allowed to talk about. And we need to have like fluff pieces, just enough to keep you happy and interested for the film. But not enough, like, you know, to say to the the guy, how did you overcome your alcoholism? Like, you know, Robert Downey Jr., I would love to speak to him about how he got himself out of his deep depression to become the guy that we see today. But it's almost like we're kind of like, nope, we're not allowed to talk about pasts. We're not allowed to talk about how you became the person you are now. And I think that's the great thing about your show is you kind of, you come across as a fan, you come across as somebody who genuinely cares, who you just seem to get them to open up. 
And why do you think, like, you've been so successful that compared to, like, you know, how everybody can start a podcast now with their with their phone? Sure. How you know? How do you think you've managed to build this amazing sort of volume of work and open so many doors? I've been very fortunate to have the broadcasting background behind me, which I think opened a lot of doors first. So early on in my career, like the Oprah interview was three years into my career, you know, and I think that I was covering the Toronto International Film Festival when I was 25 and 26 years old. And I think that having those experiences prepared me for everything that happened after that. And I always say, you know, I'm sure people are sick of me saying it, but the best thing about podcasting is anyone can start a podcast. And the worst thing about podcasting is anyone can start a podcast. Yep. And I think that if you are someone who doesn't have a background in broadcasting, and you want to start a podcast. Amazing. Yes. Congratulations. That's what the whole point of podcasting is. That's why the platform exists. But I think it's important to go into it with an intention. What are you doing with your podcast? Is this just a hobby? Is this something you're trying to make a job or a business? And I think it's important to know that. And for me, interviewing has always been a part of my job. It's always been a part of a business for me. And I think that that's been a real thing in me because I've always approached it like that. So to answer the first part of your question, how have I got people to open up? I don't really know, to be honest. I just, I listen. I think I listen and I'm empathetic if someone says something that is, I don't know, that's taking them down that path. And I think that that's an important Mm -hmm. thing is listening because the conversation again is not about me at all. Because it's it's definitely something I kind of struggled with. I was already thinking of the next question before, like, say, somebody would be finishing an answer. And there's times maybe they've left themselves open to say, you know, if you want to know about it, ask again. And I find it difficult sometimes not to revert to the script. And I find that's why I I think your interviews are so refreshing because you just kind of go, give them the opportunity to open up and to, to move it along. And you have this amazing way of being very empathetic, very humble. You know, you let you let the other person dictate the interview. Is that the kind of advice you would give to you know, sort of budding um, people who are, who want to start up the get into the industry, start their own podcasts, to listen to the guests, to be empathetic, to kind of approach it from a fan point of view? You know, what what advice would you give to kids yeah, trying to get into the industry? Just treat it as a conversation. Well, number one, start. That's the first and the most important thing. Start. I think so many people talk about starting a podcast or come up with a logo or a great name and then never end up doing anything with it. So I think the most important thing you need to do is start. And then number two, once you have started, be consistent with it. Put out a show every Tuesday or every Tuesday and Thursday or whatever it happens to be, but don't, don't start and then do it when you feel like doing it. Like do it and then stick to it. And then, yeah, don't, if it's going to be an interview show, don't treat them as interviews. Treat them as just two people that are having a conversation with each other. And I think that that's a really important thing. And swing for the fences. I learned from a really good friend of mine, Jake Hamilton, who has a a YouTube channel. You can look him up, Jake Hamilton. He gets the most incredible and also genuine interactions with every celebrity. 
And I learned early on by watching him kind of from afar, not even asking him, just kind of watching from afar and being a silent observer that he would swing for the fences. He would ask for some pretty big things or ask pretty big questions. Mm. And if it fell flat or didn't work out, he would just edit that part out of the interview and nobody would ever have to know about it. But if it worked out, my goodness, you had an incredible moment. Like I'll give you a perfect example. He interviewed Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman has an amazing voice, you know, one of the greatest voices of our time. So Jake, <laughs> I can't even believe he was able to pull this off. Jake goes, you know, you have this great voice. You are a legend. I wrote out my eulogy and I want to be able to say to my kids one day or my grandkids one day when I pass away that Morgan Freeman can read my eulogy at my funeral one day. So I wrote this out. Would you mind reading this? And Morgan Freeman starts reading a eulogy for my friend Jake, like, Jake Hamilton, what a great guy he was. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And if Morgan Freeman went, no, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. Jake would have went, oh, yeah, no worries. But I yeah, thought I'd ask. You know, it's always something I've thought about, thought I'd ask. He actually went for it and it happened. And then the moment's magic. And I think that it's important to swing for the fences. And the worst thing that can happen is you strike out. But at least he took a swing. I love it. It's it was was he the guy that pulled the uh, it doesn't matter on the rock? No, that's my other very good friend Kevin McCarthy. Because uh, that because that's what I love about it, is that kind of like like let's just go for this like because I still feel like just now I'm like oh I can't believe I asked them three three questions already I'm I'm kicking myself thinking oh uh, uh, let's recover from here I'm I'm analyzing answers thinking. Does he like me? Have I annoyed him? Have I, you know, and it's, and I think I'm still at that stage. I've done about 110, 15, whatever it is. And I still struggle sometimes to stay out my head when I'm in an interview and be in that moment. So do you approach these as I'm coming with a point? You know, like I want to interview, like, you know, say if you're interviewing Tom Cruise about a film, that's the very obvious promotion of the film. If you're interviewing, say, Grand Grail, um, like any of the other hundreds of interviews you've done, do you approach them as, I want to have a chat? Or do you approach them thinking, I want to talk to Billy Gunn about AEW. I want to pro you know speak to Big Show about him moving across to uh, commenting. How strict a sort of a focus do you have for your interviews before you start? Because your interviews cover so much ground. But do you yeah, I I think it's important with some of those people, like it'd be difficult to have an interview with Big Show right now and not talk to him about the jump from WWE to AEW and also the jump from in-ring performer to commentator. Like I think that there's, there's the, you know, 600 pound, pound gorilla in the room that I think you need to address, especially if it's your first interview with somebody. Uh, and I think that it's important to go in and, and know that that's what you're talking about. But then from there, just, I want to just ask questions I'm genuinely interested in as a fan and also someone who wants to learn. And you bring up Tom Cruise, for example. I interviewed him for the last Mission Impossible film. And yeah, of course we talked about Mission Impossible, but I was also genuinely interested in like, how does he approach a film? He's done everything. And I asked him, I said, when you go into a film, are you, are you thinking about your legacy? And he goes, no, I don't ever think about legacy. I think about like what's interesting to me. And he's like, you know, I've done dramas, I've done comedies, I've done a musical. I just want to do something that interests me and something I can learn from. And I just loved hearing that answer because that's something that I maybe never would have thought about when it comes to someone like him. 
because it was like I remember seeing a picture of you and him arm in arm, and I thought, you know, he's a real person because you see him in these like all these red carpet events, and he's very kind of you know, but you feel there's that barrier between the show Tom and the real Tom, you know, like he only keeps us from, you seem to break it down. And I think that's, that is a great thing that comes across. It's there's a lot of people who cannot deal, you know, they can't kind of, you know, they can't really connect with that person. They're not asking from a guest, like they're not scratching their own itch. Like when I, when I do these things, I want to become a better interviewer. So I'm asking one of the greatest interviewers I've found yourself how to do these things sometimes i think when you know likes yourself come on you maybe think they're just gonna ask about wrestling or jay cutler they're gonna ask about bodybuilding i want to know like what makes you tick what gets you up in the middle of the night what scares you how do you deal with the nerves how do you you know and i think sometimes i almost become too <laughs> too much for them you know do you find do you struggle with that at all have you had any episodes where you've kind of gone oh i better back off here and you know how did you deal with that kind of it, like over energy in an interview? Yeah, I never want it to be too self-serving. And I've definitely caught myself t- at times during interviews where I say, you know, I don't want to dive too deep down the rabbit hole here, but let me ask you about this. And I'm also, also hoping that during these interviews, it is if it's something that I'm interested in as a fan of that person or a fan of that sport or film franchise or whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. that other people who are a fan will also be interested in it. That's that's my ultimate hope. And then if I'm learning something, I would hope that the audience can also learn something too. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because I mean, when I started the show, I wanted it to be to better myself. So I wanted to speak to people who I really admired and learned, like how you became a like a brilliant interviewer. I wanted to speak to Jay Cutler. How did he keep the consistency to keep pushing himself to get bigger? You know, like Gary Vanderchak, how he became so confident in himself. You know, there was just something about each person. And I, I just found like I was scratching my itch as much, but I also found there were so many other people kind of going, oh, that's really interesting. You know, he discussed yeah. this, he discussed that. You know, how would you, because you do the same with your show Insight, where you start finding the hacks and the tips for people to better themselves. How do you f- listen to that, an interview, and say, okay, it's not so much just the interview, like how to use this. How can we listen to the Insight interviews and go, oh, I can re- reverse engineer that and build that into my own life? Well, I am fascinated by the idea that if somebody's doing the thing that you want to do, that that just means it's possible for you to do it. Mm -hmm. And I've been blown away by this idea since I was like a young kid, because when you're a kid, you feel like you're just moldable. Like anything is possible when you're a kid, you know, and if you're a young kid and someone's drawing really well, like I would always be the kid who would go over them and be like, show me how to do that. I want to learn how to do that. Or if someone like was 
went away for the summer and then came back and they were that much better at baseball, basketball, volleyball, whatever. I'd be like, what was it? Like, what did you do? How did you figure this out? How can I do that? And for some reason, we lose this curiosity as we get older and kind of just get stuck in our ways. And I'm doing whatever I can to kind of break out of that and go, oh, I don't know. If that person has a number one podcast or that person has a million subscribers or that person has a million followers or whatever it happens to be, I means I can do it. How can I do it? Like, what's the plan here? And you mentioned reverse engineering. And I love that. Like, I love that idea. Like, they're at step 27 and I'm at step two. I want to figure out what step 26, 25, 24, 23, all the way back to where I am happens to be. And that's why I love picking the brains of people who have done the things that I haven't quite done yet, but want to do. I was actually just speaking last week. I was on stage in Miami and I was speaking at a conference there and I thought it went pretty well, but then I watched the other speakers that went on after me and they just crushed it. Mm-hmm. And after they got off stage, I said like, teach me, I want to learn. I want to, I want to get to the level that you're at. And I understand that like this was one of my first bunch of speeches and you've, you know, done hundreds of thousands. How can I get to your level? And I think that really, truly anything is teachable and anything's learnable. Because I certainly feel like when I look at you, I kind of go, he's a complete package. You know, you look the part, you act the part, you've got the energy. Whereas I still feel like I'm a shadow, like I'm I'm getting there. And I get a kick when, say, a guest says, that's a really interesting question. But I don't feel like I've gone out there. Like I've really, I'm like, I feel like I'm leveling up each time. And just now I'm still in my head going, oh, that's a stupid question. Don't do that. You know, have that. How do you find that, like, while you're doing this? You know, how do you kind of go and ask somebody for help? Like, what advice would you give to me, for example, for improving the show? You know, is it to just let myself go more? To be Because I have 115 interviews, all really big names, majority of them. You know, like, some world-class names. But people aren't coming back. They're listening to the episode, and then maybe a few come back here and there. You've got this community that adore you. They love your your style. They talk about you and your reviews, not just the guests. How do we build a community, a tribe, rather than just people who want to come and listen to who you're interviewing? I think it really begins with authenticity. I think it begins with being authentic to who you are and not trying to be something that you're not. Because I think people will see right through that, especially now in the era that we're living in with social media, people see right through that so quickly. So I think it's just important to be authentic to who you are. And if something's interesting to you, it's going to be interesting to hundreds, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other people out there. And also realizing that it just takes time. Like Rome wasn't built in a day. All of these great podcasts were also not built in a day or a week or a month. I think it's important to just build and celebrate those little wins along the way. If last week you got a thousand downloads and this week you got a thousand and ten downloads, man, congratulations. Mm. And I think it's really important to be celebrating those little wins because one percent better every single day compounds on itself and ends up being three hundred and sixty-five percent better by the end of that year. I mean, you've made some amazing achievements. You know, you're a four-time Emmy winner. You've interviewed like star after star. You've been beaten up in wrestling. You know, you've compared. You've you've done so much. 
but you also open up in your social media about you know like your your hiking, your prep work, your love of fishing. You know, you let everybody see your whole sort of character. You know, and you've talked about vague goals make vague results. Is that your time to sort of like use sufficient to meditate to kind of calm and relax from there? You know, do you find like there's other habits like visualization, journaling? Do you is there anything you do away from it to kind of you know to recenter, recalibrate, to kind of get you ready for the next globe trick to often interview an A-list celebrity? How do you it's, reset after these amazing interviews? To keep it's definitely not passion. fishing. I'll, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. Fishing is very much like it's a passion of mine and has been since a very young age. I treat fishing like it, well, fishing is a sport, but I treat it like it's a sport. I'm very mm. competitive. I've fished in bass tournaments since I was 14 years old. So I probably put more pressure on myself fishing than I do with anything in my career. But for me to reset or anything like that, I think it's to be present in the moment. And I think it's important to assess the situation we have, like you and I are speaking right now in this very moment. And I want to be 100% here and present for this. And then when this is done, I'll be 100% present in the, the thing that comes after that. And I think a lot of that just starts with gratitude and focusing on the things that you do have rather than focusing on the things that you don't have. And it's okay. It's okay to, like I mentioned earlier, like look at somebody else that's doing the thing that you want to do and want that. But it's so important to be grateful for what you do have because when you focus on what you don't have, it just puts you in a negative mind space. So I, I actually do meditate. Um, fishing is not meditation for me. Hiking is not meditation. Hiking is really just a chance for me. Look, I live in California. There's some of the greatest trails it. in the country, you mm -hmm. know, like 10 minutes from where I live here. That's just a moment to put my phone in my pocket and not look at it for an hour or two or three. And sometimes that that's forced when you're in like the Angeles National Forest, which is like half an hour from here, and there's no signal. So you're forced to just take a break and to be present in that moment and to appreciate it. That's also what working out is for me. And I, I very much have a routine where I work out five or six days a week. I read every single day. And I think it's those little things that kind of anchor you. The Rock talks about how the gym is his anchor. Everything else in the world could be crazy and going 100 miles an hour, but the gym is always going to be there and always going to humble you too. Because I've listened to a few interviews with like big names, you know, hosts, and they'll go, oh, and they'll talk about something amazing, and you go, well, how did they juggle that? How did they deal with that pressure? And they'll go, okay, next subject. And you're like, no, 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 let's go back into that. And I think that's the great thing about it is like you show that you work out, you show that you do this, this and this. Have you found a way of juggling the demands? I mean, you're constantly doing like trips away to do things. You've got your podcast, you've got your TV work, you know, you're, you're doing TV programs. How do you juggle these conflicting demands and keeping all the plates spinning? Have you found any way of kind of get, you know, and you've got to do your own time and you've got to work out and you've got a date, et cetera. How have you found that juggling demands? to keep this amazing show running, to keep everything going at the level that you're, you know, because it's amazing. But you must be exhausted all the time. How how do you keep that and the look you've got and the gym and the, because you're elite at so much. What have you, how, I, how do you keep doing this, do you think? 
I think it's about having non-negotiables. So for me, the gym is not negotiable. And for the most part, unless I have a like super early flight, sleep is non-negotiable as well. And I think that anybody who's functioning at a high level in whatever they're doing, they'll tell you the same thing. Like you need to get your sleep. You need to be well rested. So I think for me, it, it begins with those and eating well. Like I, I do not do well on an empty stomach at all. Like the working out and eating, like that's my coffee. I don't drink coffee. So like that's, my, that's what drives me. That's what gives me energy. And also I, I schedule things out. Like I, I block it off in my calendar and I, I, before I go to bed at night, I write out a get to do list for the next day. And I, I phrase it like that intentionally. I use that language of the get to do list. I think a lot of people call it a to do list. Like, oh, these are the things I have to do tomorrow. No, no, no. These are things I get to do tomorrow. How lucky am I that I get to have this conversation with you right now? How lucky am I that before we started this, I got to talk to Adam Cole and have a great interview with him. And how lucky am I after this that I am capable to go to the gym and have a workout? Like I'm so excited about that stuff. And I think that language is so important in phrasing it. And when you start to say, these are the things I get to do today, instead of saying, these are the things I have to do today, your whole world changes. I love that. Cause I've done similar where instead of saying, oh, I hate so-and-so, you know, for a slight to happen, oh, yeah. I can I go, oh, I hope they're okay. And that immediate kind of switch of being nice to somebody kind of, it cuts out all that negativity. It's like comparison on social media. You know, you're seeing somebody's selected highlight and you're judging your entire life on them. And, you know, you don't know what they've gone through, the work yeah. they've put in. And I think that's the problem is we we're too busy comparing to really understand somebody. And that comes across in your work is you're very empathetic. You, you know, you truly kind of take the time with somebody and listen to them and feel them out. And I love at the end of your show where you're, you'll ask what they're grateful for. You know, you, you really kind of go into, you talk about in your social media, like what you're grateful for in your life for that stage. Why do you think gratitude is such an important part of our lives? Why, you know, what benefits do you find it gives you? Because since I've started doing three a day, it just cuts you out that depression. How have you found gratitude and, you know, why do you think it's so important for you and your podcast? I just think it's like a superpower because you're focusing on what you have. And so much of our life is focusing on like, and you mentioned it with the highlights on social media. It's so easy to see the trips that somebody's going on, the clothes they're wearing or the body that they've attained or whatever. Instead of focusing on what you have, and I think it's so important to be grateful for the things that you have. So it's been a practice in my life for a long time to start and end my day with gratitude. And I started ending my podcast with that partially because I want to learn what that person's grateful for. But a bigger part of it is then the viewers can go, oh my gosh, that famous person, that celebrity is grateful for things that I'm also grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I want people who are listening to go, I don't need to be rich or famous to be grateful for my health or grateful for my family or grateful for food on my table or whatever it happens to be. And I want to be able to point out the obvious to people because sometimes the obvious isn't so obvious. Sometimes common sense isn't so common. And I think it's important to point out for people that we're, we should all be grateful for these same types of things. So that's been a big reason that I'm ending my podcast with that. 
And also, I just like the cohesiveness of that. I, I like the consistency of that. That if you've been listening to my podcast for the last six months, you can count on that being the last question. And I'm a really big fan of like Tim Ferriss. You mentioned him. I love his question about if you had a billboard, what message would you put on that billboard? Yeah. Even if I'm not interested in the guest, I'll sometimes fast forward to that part of the interview just so I can get that insight. Or Lewis Howes has an incredible podcast called The School of Greatness. At the end of his interview, he asks a question, what are your three truths in life? If, if they took away everything, all your video recordings, all your audio recordings, everything, and I gave you a pen and paper, and you could only write down three things that you knew to be true, what would they be? And he asked us the, at the end of every interview. So sometimes I'll fast forward to the end and be like, oh, those are three great truths. That's something I got to go back to doing. I used to ask, um, what was it? What's an unusual fact about yourself? that you haven't talked about or not many people know about you and people will come out with these amazingly different questions or you know you you're, uh, you could have a dinner party five people can be celebrity or dead um living or you know fictional you pick them your ultimate dream f uh, five dinner party guests and the things people come out with and you were like yeah. I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day and I, <laughs> I love that kind of thing and it's I love the way it kind of finishes the interview yeah. So one thing I used to love doing was I would always act as if like I would like if I was bored at work, I'd pretend I was Jack Bauer trying to disarm a nuclear bomb like for, like I'm 24. If I was doing something boring, I would pretend I was in a movie scene and how their character would be in it, like act like the the character. But like you were saying before, it's difficult to act as if somebody because if you're not authentic, people see through that. Do you think your advice of, you know, what's the worst that could happen is a better way of doing it? Like, what was the worst that would happen if I threw myself out there and started a podcast? If I was more myself than I'd be with friends and be out there on my podcast? Is what's the worst that could happen a better way of dealing with these things than act as if, do you think? That, yeah. Or also, like, what are you waiting for? What what the F are you waiting for? You know, what's, what's standing but. Yeah. That, and then, and I really spoke from my heart in that one. Like, what's the thing that's standing between you and the life that you want to live? And the answer is you. And I think that the sooner you can come to that realization, the sooner you can start living that life. And I, I made a short video that's like the main video when you click on my YouTube channel where I end it by saying, what do you like? I swim with sharks and I swim with alligators and I do all this fun stuff. Mm. And some of it's, you know, pretty scary. And then I, at the end, I said, what are you waiting for? Like, seriously, what is it that you're waiting for? And I think a lot of people don't actually ask that question of themselves. Like, what are you waiting for? What's the thing that's standing between you and that thing? A lot of people have never asked themselves that question. They just go, well, I could never dance. I'm just not that type of person. I could never learn another language. I just, I don't, I don't have the time. And the answer again is if somebody else has done that thing, you also can do that thing. It's just you don't want to. And then you got to ask yourself, why don't you want to? Why aren't you pushing yourself to do that thing? I, oh, I could, I could never lose weight. That's just a, uh, I've tried and it just doesn't work for me. No, you need to try in a different way. And I think it's important to figure that out. If it's important to you, you're going to find a way. And if it's not, you're going to find an excuse. And I think that links back brilliantly to your vague goals gets vague results. You know, you're, you actually need to write it out. You can't just be a jujitsu like 
you know, somebody who trains jujitsu, if you want to win a tournament, you have to be a jujitsu athlete or competitor. Yes. And yes. it's like you're saying, you tr- you have to treat this as a a way of making it like a business or a, a brand rather than I run a podcast. And I spent far too long not doing that. I spent far too long being the, ah, well, I'm just doing an interview tonight. Now it's kind of like I need to showcase off the brand. I need to be talking about it. I need to come out with Michelle more. I want to look back at how I used to do it to compare to now. And I'm slowly getting better. And now when I look at your stuff, I go, that's what I want. I want these kind of goals. I want to have the thousand YouTube followers on this. I want to have this hundred thousand here. And I think that's the beauty of it. But how do you mean vague goals get vague results? How have you found setting goals? Is there a way that you'd know if something is true, if it's a vague goal, if it's a true goal? What tips have you got for goal setting for people listening? I think it's important to set a goal that has a timeline on it. And I think it's important to set a goal that is, is specific. So I'll give you an example of a vague goal. A vague goal is I'd like to lose some weight this year. That's fine. I hope that you do. But the thing is, if you gain or if you lose one pound this year, you have lost some weight. Congratulations. You've achieved your goal. So I think it's more important to go. I'd like to lose 10 pounds by December 31st. Or I'd like to increase, I'd like to get a thousand subscribers on my YouTube channel by July 15th or something like that. And I also think it's important to put that out into the world and to make yourself accountable for it for two reasons. One, you can have your followers and your friends cheering you along, being like, yes, Ian, you can do this thing. I'm so excited for you. And number two, it holds you accountable. You've put that onto the world. You've given yourself Six months to do this. Six months is going to turn into five to four to three to two to one, then into weeks and into days. And I think it's important to keep yourself on track for that. So if there's something that you really want to do and you're not just saying it, put it out into the world and hold yourself accountable for it. Now, this question might be about left field. Now, according to your Wikipedia page, you've won quite a few Bachelor of the Year awards. How have you found... Now, you go jet setting to these kind of premieres, you know, you do these t- uh, talk shows, you do all these kind of amazing things, and, you you know, you do your own podcast. How have you found things like dating, family commitments? How do you juggle the the normal side of this, making sure, you, you know, like even that you've got groceries in when you're coming back from like a long-term flight? And how, how do you keep normal relationships going and a normal life while away from the the amazing things that you're doing as a day-to-day job. Have you found yeah, ways to juggle I mean, Normal life is most of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like even if you're on a red carpet or flying or you're doing interviews or you're hosting shows or whatever, the majority of your life is still like a normal life. And I've always had great communication or at least tried to have great communication with my friends. Uh, I'm a big texter. Same with when I'm in a relationship. I I like to keep the communication lines like very open. And I think that that's a really important thing to approach in any sort of relationship, whether that's a romantic relationship, whether that's a job type of relationship, or whether that's you with your friends. I think communication is important and it really all begins there. Because it's something I've struggled with. It's like, my brother runs websites, so he's so he understands it. But my ex partner, she couldn't figure it out. Like 
what, what do you mean you're podcasting tonight? What do you mean I can't see tonight because you're speaking to a bodybuilder or you know, you're doing X, Y, Z? And it, it's, it's difficult. And I think that's like you're saying is the like you approach being a fan and being empathetic and listening and asking things that really matter. It's like that in a relationship. If you're open and communicate, and I've seen that with friends who've started things or become successful brands and stuff, they've kind of forgotten to be themselves with their family, with their friends, and it's almost like you forget that part of you. And it's so. What advice would you give to anybody listening then? If um, say in six months you were going to meet them again, what would you give them as their kind of goals for the next six months? Like, say they wanted to start their podcast, they wanted to build a brand. Is there something that you could give them as a kind of, right, this is what I want to see you in the next six months, three to six months? I would say it begins with asking yourself why you want to do it. And then answering that question will then determine how you should approach it. If you want to build a brand, I'll put that in quotations because I don't really know how you, how exactly you do it other mm. than just being authentic. But I think that if you want to build a brand, ask yourself why you want to do that. And that answer will determine how you approach it. But I think the most important thing is just starting, like just actually putting one foot in front of the other and actually beginning it. And if it's you know, some sort of a fitness goal, like a weight loss goal, or you want to run a marathon or something, start training like tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, like wake up earlier and start doing it. I think it's important to shift up your routine too, because if you keep doing the same thing, you'll keep getting the same results. So I think it's important to like start with some sort of massive action and go from there. Because there's so much still that I, I would love to chat with you. And I know we're just over our time and so I'm like, oh, I feel disappointed because there's so much about you that I would love to go into, like brand building and talking about your podcast and talk about getting guests. And that I'd love to have you on again. But for those listening, what would you want them to take from this? You know, what would, if you had to give them a sort of a go home message, a wrap up message, because you've covered some amazing people, some top tips. Are there, th- you know, are there things, key pieces of advice, maybe like one or one to three that you would maybe give people listening to really remember from this? I think a really big thing you see with people like The Rock or Tom Cruise or Oprah or any of these people we've talked about today is they're still hungry. They don't rest on their laurels. They're still hungry for what's next. So I would say to be hungry. Whether that's just to take the first step in whatever you're doing or it's take the next step in whatever it is you're doing. Hmm. And if somebody else is doing that thing that you want to do, that means that you can do it as well. So I think it's important to figure that out and ask yourself why you want to do that. Why is it important to you to do that? And kind of take the steps from there. But uh, I'd say that that's, that's something I think I've kind of touched on a lot during this conversation, but that's a really important thing. Don't limit yourself. Because you will rise to those limitations and then you'll be kind of capped there. And I think it's important to realize if there are limit limitations or limiting beliefs in your life, why are they there and how can you get rid of them? Because when you're sitting there with four Emmys behind you, you know, you've interviewed and who's who of A-list celebrities. Do you think that's why you've, you've also been that level of success is that you're constantly thinking, what's next? What's next? You're always hungry. You're never kind of going, oh, I can rest on that laurels that you've used this as a kind of, okay, that's a launching pad. What's next? Who can I go to? How, let's start a podcast. Let's 
you know, have you, have you kept that hunger? Do you think? Oh yeah. And I, early on in my career, I never took no for an answer. Like I didn't foresee a future for myself that didn't involve me being on television. And every no that I got, I just knew was taking me one step closer to eventually getting a yes somewhere. <laughs> and it took a lot of convincing and a lot of manipulating for me to get my first internship at a TV station that ended up turning into me getting an on-air job. But I just didn't see a situation where that wasn't going to be a possibility. Well, we've chatted about like how to be a better interviewer, and there's still so much area to go into. So we'll, I've definitely got to get you back on. But I like the idea of going back to having like a finishing question. So for me, it would be a next level guy, in my opinion, is somebody who lives life on another level. You know, that does something better because of the passion, intensity, whatever they put into it. What do you think makes somebody an elite performer like that? Because we kind of touched on this earlier. But if you had to sum up a person, uh, a next level person or guy, whatever you want, to, how you want to call it, what would you say makes somebody that? I think a common trait for anybody who's performing on the next level, guy or girl, man or woman, mm -hmm. is self awareness. I think knowing who you are and then being able to present yourself to the world as that authentic version of yourself is so, so important. This is why we love The Rock so much. This is why we love Will Smith so much because they're authentic and we can see a little bit of ourselves in them. So I think it's important to look within first before you can look outward. I love that. And I know we're way over time. I'm really sorry. Hopefully you don't have another point. But for people who want to connect with you, you know, follow you, listen to the show, how do we follow it? Find you on social media? Like what events have you got coming up that we can watch you in? Um, is there any TV shows you've got coming up? And how do we find you on social media? Well, wherever you're listening to this right now, you can find my podcast called Insight with Chris Van Vliet. And then on social media, it's just at Chris Van Vliet. That's Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and also TikTok. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.